0: All right, you can have your Bibles handy. Once again, there is no passage I'll ask you to turn to this morning. Uh, we are in a foundational uh, set of lessons. And um, these, this foundational set of lessons, if we could call it a bit of theory, ideology, whatever you want to call it, it's it's the foundation behind why we interpret the Bible the way we do. And last time we were together, as we began this series last week, uh, of course, it, it is technically revelation that we are getting into, but it is because of the great disparities in interpretation that I feel always compelled to uh, start with, with, with a deeper foundation on this. Last time we were together, uh, we, we talked about the very foundational assumptions that we make when reading the Bible and with which we use when we approach the Bible. These were those foundational ideas, number one, that the Bible is an accurate book, that if God, that, that if it's in the Bible, that it's accurate, that God gave us an accurate book, that the Bible is true, that it is both inspired and it is preserved. Right, So inspired in the original manuscripts, which is no good to us if God didn't preserve his word, but then God has also preserved his word so that what we have today, at least in the original Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew uh, manuscripts, and then the copies, uh, a- and then as it's reflected in our uh, very adequate and good translations, um, is the word of God is what God wants us to have. And we, of course, stand upon the King James Version because of some of the the differences in the Greek and the Hebrew between what we would say modern translations and between the uh, King James, the different Greek and Hebrew manuscripts and texts that were used uh, in translating those. The second, that the Bible is a deliberate book. That means that God intends to communicate. This is such an important one, and that's so much of where we're going to park today, that God intended us to know him, which means God isn't hiding himself from us. God didn't hide himself in creation. God did not hide himself in conscience, and God has not hidden himself through special revelation. God has given us his word in order to communicate, which means we're not reading between the lines. We're not looking for special number codes. We're not looking for for these things. We assume that God gave us what He gave us to communicate to us. Third, that the Bible is a unified book. And that the Bible is a unified book, we therefore assume... Thank you, Sarah. We therefore assume that uh, the entire book has one message, and we believe that, and we see that. That god has written the bible to be unified and that from beginning to end there is one coherent cohesive message one thing that well not just one but there, that it is a cohesive message there there are truths that god is getting across and the reason why he gave us what he gave us in his word is to communicate those truths and then fourth that the bible is a spiritual book that we cannot understand the deepest essence of this the, the bible without knowing the spirit of god and without having the spirit of god indwelling. That, that the Spirit is our teacher, therefore outside of the Spirit, we cannot truly understand the Word of God. We can understand the words, we can understand the language, we can understand the structure, we can understand those things. We can appreciate it on a literary level, we can appreciate it on a philosophical level, but you cannot understand the true meaning of God's Word unless you are a born-again believer, having the Spirit of God indwelling because He is our teacher. So those are our presuppositions. Our foundational assumptions. And of course, if we don't agree on those, then we're certainly not going to come to, the, to, to our, uh, the same place as we're interpreting the Bible. If we agree that the Bible can be inaccurate and that it has lots of errors in it and contradictions, then, then we're not going to come to the same place. If I don't agree that, that God has sought to communicate and I have to, I have to read between the lines, that's going to uh, fundamentally alter the way I read the Bible. All of these things will will change the way that I read the Bible. From this point, we also presented two major problems with how many people interpret the Bible. And those two problems were first, regressive methods of interpretation, and second, inconsistent application of interpretation. That first category, as we talked about it last week, describes those who begin with a conclusion... And work backwards instead of beginning at a foundation and build on it, right? So they, they have a conclusion in their minds and they work backwards. I remember when I was in uh, high school in physics, um, that we, we would do, we would use the scientific method, right? Where, where you start out with a hypothesis, and then you test that, prove the hypothesis, and then you can bring it to a theory. Well, the easy thing about physics when you're in high school is that, typically speaking, uh, we would know what we're trying to prove before we prove it, right? Which means you could kind of work backwards, because other people had already done the work for you, and that made things a little bit easier. But if we do that, if we say, okay, here's my conclusion, and I'm going to work backwards, and I'm going to formulate my hypothesis based upon a conclusion I've already set— then it's just a sham, right? The whole process is a sham. I am now manipulating the process to get the conclusion I want. That's not how we interpret the Bible. We need to allow the Bible to be our teacher. And as we talked about this, I used two Greek words, which uh, uh, we, we don't need to get into in and of themselves, but the two words I gave you were eisegesis and exegesis, right? Yeah, X ex is a prefix meaning out of, and ice is a prefix meaning into in the Greek. So exegesis means to lead or to draw out of. And eisegesis means to lead into or to impose upon. So when we say that we're, we are exegetical in our methods or that I'm exegeting the scriptures, what I'm tell- what I'm saying, or if you ever hear a theologian say that, the idea is that you are taking what the Bible says and you're drawing the truths out of it. As opposed to what we would call eisegesis, which is when I'm taking what's in my head and I'm putting it into the Bible to make it say what I want it to say. Or I'm taking what I see around me and I'm imposing it on the Bible. I'm saying, how can I make what I see around me fit into what God has said? And that is a bad way to interpret the Bible. That's a bad way to approach the Bible. I see things around me and they make sense to me. So I'm going to find some way to fit the Bible into what I see. That's what we would call eisegesis. Now again, you don't need the Greek words, but if you ever hear a theologian or a preacher talking about them, um, that's what he's talking about. We as a society are prone to taking what we've experienced or what we think and imposing it upon other things, especially upon texts and ideas, rather than taking the text at face value, drawing truths from it, and then determining what our opinions are based upon what we've drawn out. And what our senses uh, are by what we read instead of what we experience the second problem as i mentioned was inconsistent application of interpretation when our interpretation methods are subject to our whims rather than to a set of clear standard consistent rules by which we interpret And that's what we're going to talk about primarily today. The rules by which we interpret the Bible. And and when I say we, I do mean uh, more me, right? And and then by, by extension of that, what Legacy Baptist Church has set in place. This is how we are as a philosophy, as a church. This is what we believe and how we believe the Bible ought to be. Interpreted Now, everything we do, obviously, at Legacy Baptist Church, and everything I would say that everybody does at every church that they attend, is, is they do it because they believe it's a best practice, right? Nobody does things because they think it's the wrong way. Uh, the reason why they do it is because they think it's the right way. That doesn't necessarily mean we think it's the only way or, or that that everybody that's not doing it our way is wrong. But the reason why we do things the way we do is because we feel as though it is best. The reason why we we, we choose the songs that we do, and the and, and the w- the reason why we we choose the the style of singing that we do, which is we t- typically uh, call it high worship, um, it is not necessarily because we believe that other forms of worship are inherently wrong, but we believe that this is best for us, for our circumstance, for for for. For our time, for our people, for our desires, for our our context, we believe it's best. It's not that we necessarily say that anybody who uses another translation is wrong or evil, but we use the King James because we believe it is best. And so we, we hang our hat on best practices, right? It's why we do what we do. But what we're going to talk about today is this idea of best practices in interpretation. It doesn't mean that, there's, that, that because somebody doesn't use one of these that they are inherently wrong or, or, or that uh, you can't do things that way, but, but this is going to be kind of the rules that we feel are the best practice for interpreting the Bible in a manner that conforms itself to our initial foundations, that the Bible's accurate, deliberate, unified, and spiritual. So we take that and we build our rules on top of that. And then we'll take our rules and we'll build on top of that our framework. And we'll take our framework and we'll build on top of that how we understand the Scripture. And this is how we build it so that it's consistent, so that it's clear, and so that we're safe. So that we're safe. And that's what we want is to not get ourselves uh, caught up in in, in confusion or false doctrine or uh, majoring on the minors because of Deviating from a rational, consistent manner of interpreting the Word of God. And the reason why our methods of interpretation matter so much is because how we interpret the Bible determines our doctrine, right? And our doctrine determines our worldview, and our worldview determines our beliefs, not only spiritually, but about every element of life. So my worldview determines my morality. My view on abortion is determined by my worldview, which is determined by my doctrine, which is determined by how I interpret the Word of God. My thoughts on race, my thoughts on homosexuality and transgenderism, all those big issues today. How I, what I think about these things, politics, culture, society, it's dependent upon my worldview. If we think of worldview as the glasses through which we see the world, everyone's got one. Everyone's got a set of lenses through which we see the world. And so often we look at somebody else and we say, why don't they see what's so clearly in front of them? It's because they're looking at the same thing through different glasses. Their worldview is fundamentally different from yours, and so they're going to come to fundamentally different conclusions than you are. My worldview determines all elements of my life. It determines my politics. It determines my my uh, uh, social uh, thoughts as far as uh, how my, my social standards. It determines my morality. All of these things are determined by my worldview. So if I believe that the earth is a product of random chance and that I am here by accident and that humanity is no different from any other animal, save that I have become more evolved, then that's going to change a lot of things about how I see the world, isn't it? First, it's going to change how I view the death of a human. It's no different than the death of an animal. So that's going to do one of two things. Either that means I don't care about humans dying, which is how, say, Hitler took it, the evolutionary theory, and how the communists have taken evolution theory for the last hundred years, which is why a hundred million people have died under communism. Or I'm going to take it the other way and I'm going to say I can't kill a chicken because it's no different from killing a human, right? And now I'm going to start loving animals to the extent where I can't kill animals or eat animals or do anything with animals or wear, wear their fur or anything because an animal is no different from a human. So I'm going to go one way or another. Sometimes they go both. I don't understand that. But, but that, that is because of an evolutionary worldview, right? So I look at them and I say, why why is it that they look at the chicken and they say, I can't kill that, and I look at the chicken and I say, that's going to taste really good with pepper and maybe some ketchup, depending, you know? And, and, And how is it that two people can look at a chicken and see two entirely different things because of our worldview? How is it that they can look at me, kill a chicken, and call me a murderer and think I need to be thrown in jail? How can they be that extreme? Well, it's just, there's a different worldview. Right, based upon their evolutionary presuppositions. And I, on the other hand, believe that the Bible says that God created the world for mankind's use, Right, that God has a plan for humanity, that he will return, that, so that overpopulation is not going to be an issue, that global warming is not going to be an issue, because God said that as long as the earth is around, there will be springtime and harvest, there will be hot and cold, all of those things. So because I trust the Bible, my worldview is fundamentally different, and it changes my thoughts on the issues of life naturally then, I'm going to be very frustrated with people that don't see things the way I see things, but it's not that our problem is not actually up here on the third-tier stuff, is it? We dig down, our problem is on first-tier worldview stuff. That's where the difference really lies that leads to higher conclusions that are very different. I hope I'm expressing that properly. We could spend a whole, I mean, we could spend weeks just talking about that. So, The point then is not that as we dig back down to a spiritual level and we talk about end time stuff. The point is not that these people are evil people. They're not believers. They hate God. They don't understand the Bible. They hate the Bible. They're trying to distort everything. That's really not the the, the issue. The issue is we have a fundamentally different way of looking at the Bible. Fundamentally different way of interpreting the Bible. Now someone is right and someone is wrong. Make no mistake. But We need to get away from this idea that just because someone disagrees with me, that that makes them inherently evil. And we need to start understanding where the disagreements lie and sticking with the scriptures to find out how those disagreements can be reconciled. And if we're unwilling to reconcile, well, then we can't, right? If, if, if there's no capacity to reconcile. There is a second point that I want to make before I move on here this morning, and we're going to come back to this briefly uh, a little bit later, and it might make a little more sense then. But uh, we need to talk about language for a moment as it relates to interpretation. We have a major problem in the Western world today, and it's been going on for some time. It's been going on for at least a, 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 b- about two centuries now where the language is becoming democratized. Uh, words and meanings are now subject to perception and feeling rather than fact. To this end, ideas in language have been cheapened. Language no longer communicates truth. Language communicates perhaps reality but not truth. It communicates feeling but not fact. Every element of society from sports to politics to entertainment is caught up in the idea that words don't have a true meaning that the only meaning that words have is the meaning that you give to them. To this end, nobody, has, no, nobody can talk on the same level anymore. I can't use words and, ex- and just ex- assume that you're going to understand what those words mean because those words may mean something entirely different to you. And our society has become okay with that, with the idea that, your words, that, that these words mean something to you and mean something different to me. And that's a big, big problem. So your words define your truth rather than your words defining the truth. C.S. Lewis has a really great um, statement on this, a little excerpt on this in his book, Mere Christianity. Now, uh, we are uh, I, I'm, I'm not a big C.S. Lewis fan as it relates to theology. The man was not a good theologian. Uh, whenever I hear somebody say that C.S. Lewis is one of their favorite Christian theologians, my eyes cross because he's not a good theologian. He's a fantastic communicator, but not a good theologian. However, his book, Mere Christianity, is very good, very helpful in very many ways. And in Mere Christianity, he kind of tries to set a baseline Um, And one of the things he laments is the cheapening of language that allows people to get away with the silly notion that they can both deny Christ and still call themselves a Christian. And he says this. I actually gave you uh, the excerpt in your newsletter for this month. So if you haven't gotten one of those newsletters and you'd like to read this for yourself sometime, I'm going to read it for you. I don't normally read the words of other men from behind the pulpit. I like to stick to reading the words of God. But we're kind of, like I said, more in a lecture format than a preaching format over the next few weeks. Let me read you what he said. He said, People ask, Who are you to lay down who is and who is not a Christian? Or uh, or may not many a man who cannot believe these doctrines be far more truly a Christian, far closer to the Spirit of Christ than some who do? Now this objection is in one sense very right, very charitable, very spiritual, very sensitive. It has every available quality except that of being useful. We simply cannot without disaster use language as all these objectors want us to use it. I will try to make this clear by the history of another and very much less important word. The word gentleman originally meant something recognizable. One who had a coat of arms and some landed property. When you call someone a gentleman, you were not paying him a compliment, but merely stating a fact. If you said he was not a gentleman, you were not insulting him, but giving information. Then there was no contradiction in saying that John was a liar and a gentleman any more than there is now in saying that James is a fool and a master of arts. But then there came people who said, so rightly, charitably, spiritually, sensitively, so anything but usefully, Ah, but surely the important thing about a gentleman is not the coat of arms and the land, but the behavior. Surely he is the true gentleman who behaves as a gentleman should. Surely in that sense, Edward is far more truly a gentleman than John. They meant well. To be honorable and courteous and brave is of course a far better thing than to have a coat of arms. But it is not the same thing. Worse still, It is not a thing everyone will agree about. To call a man a gentleman in this new refined sense becomes in fact not a way of giving him information about him, but a way of praising him. To deny that he is a gentleman becomes simply a way of insulting him. When a word ceases to be a term of description and becomes merely a term of praise, it no longer tells you facts about the object, it only tells you about the speaker's attitude to that object. A nice meal only means the speaker likes the meal. A gentleman, once it has been spiritualized and refined out of its old course, objective sense, means hardly more than a man whom the speaker likes. As a result, gentleman is now a useless word. We have a lot of terms of approval already, so it was not needed For that use on the other hand if anyone say in a historical work wants to use it in this old sense He cannot do so without explanations. It has been spoiled for that purpose Now if once we allow people to start spiritualizing and refining or as they might say deepening the sense of the word Christian It too will speedily become a useless word in the first place Christians themselves will never be able to apply it to anyone It is not for us to say who in the deepest sense is or is not close to the Spirit of Christ. We do not see into men's hearts. We cannot judge and are indeed forbidden to judge. It would be wicked arrogance for us to say that any man is or is not a Christian in this refined sense. And obviously a word which can never apply is not going to be very useful. As for the unbelievers, they will no doubt cheerfully use the word in a refined sense. It will become in their mouth simply a term of praise. In calling anyone a Christian, they will mean that they think him a good man. But that way of using the word will be of no enrichment to the language, for we already have the word good. Meanwhile, the word Christian will have been spoiled for any really useful purpose it might have served. I gave you that very long excerpt and I read that whole thing because now we, we see that, right? The, the word Christian means nothing in society today. Everyone calls themselves a Christian and no one calls themselves a Christian. And you have to start adding layers to that, right? I'm not just a Christian, now I'm a born-again Christian. And then that doesn't work anymore, so now you have to call yourself a born-again Holy Spirit and dwelled Christian. And at some point, you spend so much time labeling yourself that by the time you're done labeling yourself, you're all tired and you just want to go home. And that's a shame. Because what we're doing is we're democratizing language to where language has no meaning. And if we democratize this book, and this is what religions have done, right? Go up to a Catholic and ask them if they're, if they're saved by faith alone. They'll say yes until you start defining what that means. Go up to a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon and ask them if they believe that Jesus Christ is the, the, is Savior. And they'll say yes until you start realizing they don't believe that Jesus is even God. But that's because the Word is being constantly refined and redefined until it means nothing because it means everything. That's a big problem. We can't do that with the Word of God. We need to have, a, we need to have rules on, on, on how to read it, on how to draw out meaning, or else we'll, we'll come to any number of conclusions and we'll all say the same thing but mean everything different. And then we get nowhere. And then the church does this. Splits. No unification. We, we, we can't even talk about unifying because we're not even playing in the same ballpark. You're not, we're not even on the same planet anymore with churches. We have 18 churches in Buffalo. If we tried to sit down in this town of 15,000 people with 18 churches and come to a consensus, we'd have to spend the first year of that consensus meeting just trying to define terms. That's where we are today. So... Among our little group of people, among believers, we need to understand meaning. We need to appreciate meaning. We need to love meaning and desire to find it and and, and allow meaning to define itself and not for us to define it. We're predisposed then as believers to believe the Bible. There are many who, while they claim to believe the Bible, hold viewpoints which are entirely inconsistent with their claims. And we need to understand that so often what that boils down to is meaning, interpretation, the democratization of, democratization of language, all of these things. And that's why we are where we are. So let's walk through these ideas that will lead us to the rules by which we interpret. So let's talk about the rules. I'm going to give you five rules about how we approach interpreting the Bible. You've probably heard these before if you've ever read a book or an orthodox book on biblical interpretation. Rule number one, we read the Bible literally. Why? Because remember our foundational assumption that we believe the Bible's a deliberate book? And if we believe the Bible's a deliberate book, that means God wanted to communicate. If my wife writes me a letter, the worst way I can read that letter is to read it and then say, I wonder what she means when she says she loves me. And I start looking for double meanings and I start looking for backhanded insults. And if I read the letter that way and my wife just told me she loves me, why can't I just take her at face value, right? Why can't I just read the letter as she wrote the letter? If she wanted to tell me that she didn't love me, she could have told me she didn't love me. But she told me she loved me, I'm not gonna read into that anything that's not there. And I can and I can have, you know, but, but, but in doing so I do my wife a disservice to the letter that she wrote me, right? If I believe the Bible's a deliberate book, then I'm going to interpret the Bible as if God meant it to be understood, which means I'm going to read it literally. We do this because the Bible's a a book that we believe God intended for us to understand. God is not some angry, passive-aggressive friend who gives vague little hints about why he's upset and then gets even more angry when you don't pick up why he's actually upset, right? Uh, And then you just have to throw your hands up and say, well, I don't know what hints they're trying to lend me. And you say, why are you angry? And they look at you and say, well, you should know. Why? Because you gave me a hint three weeks ago in, in, in a passing glance, right? God's not like that. That's not God. God desires to communicate. And if we assume God is deliberate, then we can assume that we can take him at his word, that we don't have to read into double meanings and, and such. Now, as we say this, and we'll talk about this more as the weeks go on, the Bible has different genres of literature, right? So I'm not going to read poetry as literally as I read historical narrative. If you if you open a poetry book and you try to read it literally, you're, you're going to be deeply confused, right? So I don't go into poetry with the same intent of literalness, but I am going to go into poetry understanding the rules of poetry and how you interpret poetry and then take those rules at face value and interpret literally within the rules. That's the idea. I hope I'm making sense. I really hope I'm making sense. So we believe God wants to communicate with us, which means that We are determined to take God's word at face value because that's how a reasonable person effectively communicates and we believe that God is reasonable and he wants to communicate, right? Number two, grammatical. We believe the Bible is an accurate book and so we're going to trust the words. The words as they were written, the words as they were intended, the words as they made sense in that day. We're not going to redefine the words. We're not going to take our English words 2,000 years later and impose English definitions upon 2,000-year-old Greek words. We're going to seek for what the bible meant by what how it was written when it was written because we believe that the words and the language matter not just the concepts and ideas because the bible is an accurate book it's been inspired it's been preserved so we exhibit confidence that god has given us a detailed and accurate and a complete revelation of himself and to that end words matter we don't attempt to redefine them to fit our ideas or our narratives or our agendas or our society or our culture. We desire to let the Bible speak for itself, to let the Bible judge us, and then we respond to it out of the Spirit of God. Because the Bible is an accurate book. Therefore, we're going to take it at face value and its words at face value. Third, staying on accuracy for a moment. The Bible is a historical book and we believe it and we'll take it historically. We believe that the Bible uh, fits into history seamlessly and that it is accurate as it relates to history. We believe that the Bible is a book that is inspired and preserved and so it's accurate and that it is historical and so there is a historical basis for what was written and that there is a reason why things were written when they were written, how they were written and given to us in the form that they were given to us. To this end, we are careful to understand that while the whole bible is written for us the whole bible was not written to us may i say that again while the whole bible was written for us the whole bible was not written to us there are passages in the old testament that were written of judgment to a certain people in a certain time and it is meant for the purpose of teaching us about a god of judgment but i'm not going to impose that judgment upon 2018 united states of america it was written for us but it was not all written To us. It was written in history. It was written to, for a purpose. And so when a person comes out about every other year with a book where they take some old prophecy in Isaiah and say that shows that America is going to be gone in five years, you ought to be skeptical. Because that, that passage in Isaiah was written to the people in Isaiah's day because of Isaiah, the, the sins of the people of Isaiah's time under the covenant of Moses in Isaiah's day. And that means that we can be and ought to be rightly skeptical. We ought to be rightly skeptical when people are trying to draw out all of these conclusions and we need to be careful that we draw out the historical context within which things are written because the Bible is a historical book. So we interpret literally. We interpret grammatically. We interpret historically. We interpret contextually. We don't just take a verse and say this verse exists in a vacuum, not the kind that you use to clean the floor, children. You might want to ask your parents what a vacuum is in the other sense later. I've explained it many times. I can't always explain it. But the idea being that uh, we we don't just take one verse and say this verse means this outside of the context within which it's given. We talked about it when we talk about the, the epistles being letters, right? If the epistle is a letter, then that which is found in paragraph three depends on paragraphs one and two for its context we need to interpret the bible that way we interpret the bible contextually so what do we do okay so paul wrote romans first thing that we do if we want to interpret romans and we want to interpret it properly is we stick in romans what did he say beforehand what's he going to say afterwards then after that we go to the other books written by paul because paul had a way of thinking and a way of writing, so we go to his other books to help understand. And then after that, we go to the other epistles. Then we go to the entire New Testament. Then we go to the Old Testament. And in doing so, we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. We, we recognize because the Bible is a unified book, because God had 40-plus authors over 2,000 years writing a single story, we can trust the Bible to be a good commentary on itself. And I can trust that it's not going to contradict between Genesis and Matthew. And so I can use Genesis to help me interpret Matthew. And in fact, sometimes in the New Testament and Old Testament, I can't interpret it without the other books because Revelation progresses. Progressive Revelation. We'll talk about that when we get to dispensationalism in a couple of weeks. So we believe that the Bible is contextual, that we need the Bible to interpret the Bible, and that we're going to use the Bible to interpret the Bible, Bible, and we're going to keep verses in their context and not try to draw them out for my own purposes not try to bring them outside of context for my own, my own agenda. Finally, we interpret, now it, with most people they, they'll say literally, grammatically, historically, contextually. They stop at 4. I'm fine with that. I added this one because I don't know that we can do without it. You got to interpret prayerfully. You've got to interpret prayerfully. Because why? Because we presuppose that the Bible's a spiritual book. Which means if I don't understand it, the Spirit of God does. And the Spirit of God is my teacher and I have Him in dwelling, which means I'm going to ask Him. And He might send me to a book or to a pastor or to a a mentor or He might just help me understand it. He's done all those things with me. We need to go where the Spirit leads and where the Spirit teaches. Even if we're not comfortable. Even if if it, 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 it... doesn't always make full sense to us. Whether we like it or not. Whether it meets or offends our sensibilities. Whether it makes perfect sense. Faith always precedes blessing. God's ways are not our ways. And if we prayerfully and therefore humbly approach God's word and we keep the rules in check and it's consistent, walking in fellowship, not grieving or quenching the spirit of God, he has promised to teach us all things, has he not? And so this leads us in the way that we should go. And it leads us to how we should interpret the Word of God. And those are the rules interpret literally, grammatically, historically, contextually, prayerfully. And we do that because we presuppose the Bible is an accurate book, a unified book, a uh, deliberate book, and a spiritual book. Right? We're building. We built the rules on top of the presuppositions. Let's talk about our philosophy of interpretation next. When we speak of the philosophy of interpretation, I'm speaking about the role that various actors play, and this is so important for our age, and we're going to talk about why in just a moment. I skipped a little bit of an illustration earlier. I might come back to it as we consider this concept. In order to understand our philosophy of interpretation, we need to lay down a couple of definitions. And the first one is this word meaning. I define meaning as the thoughts, ideas, patterns, and understandings which the author willed to convey by the words he used to the reader. Meaning, what is, so So when I read a passage of scripture and I say, what does it mean? I'm not asking what it means to you. I'm asking what it means to the author who wrote it. That's what, that's what we're saying. When we talk about meaning, it's what the author desired to convey, not what you heard. I'm always amazed at what people hear from my preaching. I'll preach something, and then a few weeks later, someone will do something, they'll say, because pastor, in your sermon, you said this, and so I did that, and I said, wait a minute, <laughs> That's not what I meant. Right? No. Is that really what you heard? Because I, I don't think I even said that, right? But, but somehow things translate. Our duty is not to find out what we think the Bible means. Our duty is to find out what God intended the Bible to mean. That is, the, that, that is what meaning is. Now, where does application come in? We'll talk about that in a little bit. But that is meaning. Within this definition, we find three actors. The author what the author willed by the words he used to the reader. There are three actors there, the author, the text, and the reader. Each role is important to understand in its proper place. The primary actors in interpretation are, number one, the text. The text is the medium by which meaning is conveyed. It is impartial. It is objective. The text does not determine its own meaning. The text is simply the medium through which the author's meaning is expressed. Pastor, why are we going through philosophy this morning? It's like a college class. I'm sorry I have to do this to you. I really am. But here's the thing. We live in a society where everything but the original author uh, determines meaning today. The Constitution of the United States is the best example of this. There are two major camps, right? Textualists and whatever you'd want to call them, interpretists. There are those that believe that we need to interpret the Constitution as it was intended by the founders, that that a judge needs to go back to what's called original intent. And then there are those that believe that the Constitution is what we call a living document, that it needs to merge and morph itself into the, 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 the age in which it lives, that there's no way the founders could have anticipated 2018, so we need to adapt the meaning of the Constitution to meet what we are today. Now typically speaking, originalists, those who believe in original intent, are more conservative. And, and the, the, those that are more uh, on the, the left-leaning persuasion, liberal, are those who believe that the Constitution is a living document. Because if the Constitution is a living document, then it has no meaning anymore. And they can make it mean whatever they want it to mean, based upon society. Now, these are two deeply different philosophies based upon different worldviews. That's where this comes from. It comes from an entirely different perspective on life. I'm getting philosophical with you this morning because this is a this is the way that a lot of people read the Bible. They say the Bible, it doesn't matter what God intended when it was written. It matters how it applies today. So we need to wrap the Bible around contemporary 2018 culture. We need to wrap it around the philosophies of today, the culture of today, the perspectives of today, how, how society views women. We need to impose that upon the Bible. How society views, views sexuality. We need to impose it upon the Bible. Instead of, uh, instead of assuming that God's word is inspired and preserved, that it is timeless, that it is accurate, and that if I stick to the word of God, it, it is good for every generation. So I need to find out what God intended when he wrote it. Two entirely different philosophies, right? Right? So, many people believe that, that, and this is their philosophy, that when, say, a book is written or when a painting, it's especially big in the art world, when a painting is painted, any form of communication when it's set down, that work becomes autonomous. That the meaning of the text is completely independent from what the author intended when he wrote it. Within this philosophy, what a person actually meant when he penned the words of a book has very little value in determining the meaning of the text. If you ever go to an art gallery, you'll hear people say that the piece of art carries its own meaning. That it doesn't matter matter what Picasso intended to express when he painted. It only matters what it wells up in you. Or the art has taken on a life of its own. Well, that's fine for a piece of art. It's not okay with the Bible. If we do that with the Bible, then the Bible becomes meaningless. Society is attempting, as I mentioned, to do the same thing with the Constitution of the United States. But the problem with this view is that the text is no more and no less than a collection of symbols. Is it? Meaning is not a product of a collection of symbols. Meaning is a product of rational thought. Meaning is a product of rational thought. So then the text cannot define its own meaning. Well, then what good is it? It's the medium of communication, but it's only a good media medium of communication to the extent that the author is rational and submits himself to the conventions of language. I can sit my daughter down in front of my keyboard on my computer and say, please write a sermon for me. And she'll go, and I could attempt to preach that on a Sunday morning but it's not going to mean anything. It's not going to be framed in words or sentences or thoughts or anything. Why? Because she did not adhere to the conventions of language when she placed the symbols on the page. The symbols are little more than symbols. They have to be put in a certain order and placed into a certain structure, which every one of us in this room has agreed upon in order for it to have any meaning to us. I know. This is, I, I know. It's like a college class this morning. I get you. Eyes are glazing over. Sorry, Joseph. You've already been to five days and now you're day number six for you. I get it. But this is important stuff because this is the stuff that lays the very foundation for why the church is where it is today, folks. There's no meaning anymore. Because people think the Bible interprets itself like the Bible is a living document meant to be uh, adapting over time to culture, like the words that are on the page don't actually mean what they mean. Like we can just throw away the conventions of language and allow it to mean whatever we want it to as long as it makes sense to us and as long as it makes us feel good. And that is why the church is where it is today. And that is why we're not influencing culture. And that is why society is going this way and the church is dragging along like like, like a spare tire that's fallen off. Because we're not doing anything in culture today because we're afraid of meaning. We're afraid to say the Bible means something because we're going to offend somebody. And we don't even know what the Bible means ourselves because you can, you can, go, to a, you can, you can go to the bookstore downtown and you can find books that, that contradict themselves on every shelf about what the Bible means. And you can open up translations and they don't even say the same thing. Yet they call themselves translations of the, of the same text. We're in trouble And this is why the modern breakdown in the norms of language is troubling for this very reason. Because once we begin changing words uh, uh, to mean things that they don't, and once we begin using language in a way it isn't supposed to be used, there is no meaning anymore and we just can't communicate anymore. We can't communicate. We have all experienced this with the word Christian and, I talked, and that's what C.S. Lewis talked about. We just, I, I, you know, wh- wh- no matter what the label is, you can't call yourself. Uh, we, we regularly debate whether we should take Baptist off the sign because we have a lot of people that won't come to the church just because Baptist is on the sign. It's communicating something but it's not communicating what we intend it to communicate anymore. Until somebody sits in here and then we go through an entire history class on what the Baptist name means and then they can say, okay, yeah, I can appreciate that. But is that good to put on a sign that represents you? Because words don't have meaning anymore, right? And they mean something different to everyone. It's such a shame. So, denominational labels, it's that way, right? It used to be that the difference between the Baptists and the Presbyterians and the Methodists were just church structure. That they all had a general foundation in proper doctrine and it was just simply church differences in polity, do you believe in an elder system? Do you believe in a, a, uh, a hierarchy? Do you, do you, uh, you know, w- w- which ordinances do you, do you believe are, are most important? All of those, those were the differences. It's not that way anymore, is it? It's not that way anymore. You can go to a Baptist church and find Presbyterian polity or Methodist polity. Uh, you can go to a Methodist church and find uh, Catholic polity. Uh, and, and yet in all, in, in each case, you may not find doctrine in any of them. Or you might find doctrine in all of them. It's just a mishmash. Nothing means anything anymore. Right? That's the problem. And the same can be said of doctrinal terms salvation, repentance, belief, depravity, election, predestination. They don't mean anything anymore because they mean everything. So we see the role of the text. The, the text is little more than the medium through which we communicate, it does not interpret itself. It is meant to be a, 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 a vessel through which the author communicates meaning to the reader. Let's talk secondly about the reader, as I must hasten on. The reader is the person who receives the text given by the author. The imp- it is important for us to understand the reader is not the person who determines meaning. The author determines meaning. The prevailing theory, there is, again, a very heavy prevailing theory in culture today that believes text or art is subservient to the will of the person who is reading it, viewing it, interpreting it. To this end, it doesn't matter what the author, the painter, intended when he created the work. The only thing that matters is what it means to me. Now, it is true that as I interpret the text or the painting, its significance to me might be different than its significance to you. That's true. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the meaning is settled. The author had something he meant when he put those words down on a page and if we want to be able to communicate properly I need to find out what he meant when he wrote those words because that's how communication works you see the problem if we if we don't go that route right If the text is only as good as the one who interprets it, then again, communication means nothing. If every person can set the meaning of the text for himself, the text has no meaning, and then the meaning as it relates to the text is only as good as the intelligence of the person and and the worldview of the person reading it. How can I change anyone's mind by writing a book if they're allowed to take that book and impose their own meaning upon it? I'm not going to change their mind because their meaning is imposed upon my words, which means. I'm agreeing with them no matter what, right? Or I'm disagreeing no matter what because they're the ones that are determining meaning. It doesn't work that way. You can read the Bible and say it means I need to kill my enemies. You can also read the Bible and say it means I need to forgive my enemies. And if meaning is only assigned by the the reader, then neither one is wrong, right? But there's a difference between those two and it really matters whether or not one's right and one's wrong Or the other's right and the other's wrong. So the individual text becomes meaningless and the author becomes useless if we go that route. So what route do we need to go? Where do we need to be here? Well, it seems reasonable, rational, consistent that the author is the one that defines the meaning. The text is the method of communication which means the author is going to bind himself to common conventions of language in order to communicate properly and that the reader is going to use the common conventions of language to determine what the author intended. That's how we interpret the Bible, right? That's what we need to do. It doesn't matter what you believe the Bible says. It doesn't matter what I believe the Bible says. It matters what God intended the Bible to say. I'm not going to stand before God one day and be judged upon my impressions of the Bible or your impressions of the Bible. I'm going to stand before God and be judged on what God communicated to me because God is the author. God intended to communicate. I believe that because that's foundational, which means I'm going to find out what God wants me to know and I'm going to believe it. And that's the idea basically the idea is if I if Paul were alive today or Peter were alive today or Moses were alive today and I could sit down with them open up to their writings and say what did this mean what he says is what it means and that's what I'm looking for even though they're dead I'm looking for what he wanted me to know what does God want me to know what did God mean when he wrote this which is why context is so important history so important Words are so important which is why we need to have good translations that don't just give us ideas that don't just give us give us the gist but that tell us the words so that then the Holy Spirit can take the words and give us the meaning that God intended. And that's why we, we uh, believe in what we call formal equivalence translations and not dynamic equivalence. Word for word not thought for thought. It all builds on itself right? It's all found based upon this foundation. This is exciting me. I hope it's exciting you, too. You don't look very excited, but I hope it's exciting you, at least in spirit. All right. So we believe that the author confers meaning. And it's our job to find out what that meaning is. And it's our job to conform ourselves to that meaning. So now let's come back to the definition of meaning. Meaning are the thoughts, the ideas, the patterns, the understandings which the author willed to convey by the words he used to the reader. Notice that as we also consider meaning, we're not just speaking of thoughts, we're speaking of patterns, ideas. Within the scope of an author's, author's meaning can be various patterns, various ideas, which extend beyond his direct reference. The, the, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you an illustration of this in a minute, so stick with me here. Uh, there are also, in, in each text, there are implications. That word implications, as I define it here, are elements of the text's meaning which were not explicitly stated but which were are entirely consistent with the author's meaning and we define these implications these are still defined by the author these are still defined by the text they're still within the box of what the author intended even if he didn't say it explicitly it's obviously consistent with what he meant i'll give you an example and then the third definition the third thing we talk about is significance significance is about how the reader applies this is application this is application. This is gonna be different for you and for me. But that level, see, when we, take, when we take application and we bump it all the way back to meaning, we get in trouble. But if we keep meaning, implication, and significance separate, to where I say the author defines meaning, the author defines implication, I get to define significance. Then we're in a safe place. How does this play out? Well, I'm going to give that to you in this num- point number three, our methods of interpretation. So literal, grammatical, historical, contextual, prayerful. That's how we interpret based upon the foundation. The Bible's an accurate book, a deliberate book, a unified book, a spiritual book. We set down the philosophy that the author defines meaning, that the text is the, the medium through which the author conveys that meaning, that the reader's job is to, to, to define, the, to find that meaning, right? To, to uh, um, understand, interpret that meaning. So let's talk about method here. When we approach any given passage, interpretation takes place along three lines of thought. What is the meaning, the pattern of meaning? What are the valid implications to that meaning? And what is the personal significance to me or to you? The first two, as I mentioned, are determined by the author. The final one is determined by each individual person and cannot be given across the board. I can't tell you this is how this passage applies to your life in the most direct way because it's going to apply to each of us a little differently. I'll show you how that works in just a moment. As we hear the meaning of the text, we determine the meaning, we draw out valid implications. It all fits within the, the pattern of meaning. And then we then label our particular significance to it. So in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, we read this. I'd love to, to give you several. If we were in a lecture format, I'd give you several. But I'm only going to give you one example. Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen and 20. Great Commission. Jesus said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I command you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. This text has a meaning, doesn't it? Jesus is commissioning 11 disciples. Judas is dead. They haven't, they haven't appointed his successor yet. Jesus is commissioning 11 disciples to go into their world and to make disciples. That first time, the first word teach there is the word meaning make disciples. The second time we see the word teach in, in verse 20, it actually is a different word meaning to impart instruction. So the meaning of the text is that Jesus is talking to 11 men and telling them to go into the world and to to make disciples of all nations and he gives them the the method of doing so in two ways. First, by baptizing them. Baptism is a public profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To that end, the first step the first call is to get people saved, right? And thus to, to publicly identify with the Lord. That's salvation and baptism is a sign of that. And, and so they, the first step is baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. That's salvation, saved and baptized. The second step is to teach them all things, to instruct them. That's discipleship. That's sanctification, right? That's teaching them how to, say, interpret their Bibles properly. This is that process. This is why you come every week. After you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you come to church to be discipled, to learn all things as to what Christ would have us to do. So the command is to make disciples by converting men and women to Christ and then teaching them how to follow Christ. And Jesus then promises that he'll be with them until the end of the world, that word meaning age, this dispensation. Let's briefly interpret this together. The direct message, as we mentioned, is given to the eleven, that they would go into the world and preach the gospel. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 tells us Jesus said that they would speak in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth, right? Now that lays down a singular pattern of meaning, the historical command to Jesus directly responding to the 11 that were commissioned. But there is a very valid implication that Jesus, as he commissioned the 11, that this commission can be extended to the early church as they go into Jerusalem and Judea, right, and to local churches. And then we can extend a very valid implication of the Great Commission to the entire church so that we today can also be compelled by the Great Commission to go and are indeed, by implication, being told that we are to go as well. That's our purpose. That's why we exist. We exist after salvation to spread the gospel to the world, to be a light in the darkness, to be a city on a hill. That's why we exist. Those are all valid implications. Now, historically, grammatically, contextually, Jesus was talking to 11 men, perhaps more. We don't know exactly how many were there, but he was talking to a small group of men. By implication, he's talking to all of us. And that's not a stretch. And we can be quite comfortable in that implication. Now, we might not all agree on every implication, but that's an implication that I would draw out of this text. Again, that's something that God defines, not us. God defines the pattern of meaning, the, the extent to which implications are valid. What would some invalid interpretations of this passage look like then? What would some invalid implications of this passage look like? Well, he says, go ye therefore and teach, make disciples of all nations. It would be invalid for me to imply that if a person did not have a national identity, he could not be saved. Because Jesus says, teach all nations, not people, nations, right? It would be invalid. That would be an invalid implication that if you are not, if you don't have a national identity, you can't be saved. Or if you don't reach the entire nation, then no one got saved, right? That's invalid. That is not something that the text would support or would uphold. And we go to scripture. We compare scripture with scripture to recognize that it would be invalid for me to imply that water baptism is what saves people from this. That is an invalid interpretation because I can go to 1 Peter 3.21 where he specifically says not the washing away of the filth of the flesh but the answer of a good conscience toward God is what saves people. And so I I can reduce the valid implications of the text and I can identify invalid implications based upon comparing Scripture with Scripture so that I know what God intended to say here and I know generally what he didn't intend to say here. I know that God has commissioned the church us included to go into the world and to preach the gospel because it's all throughout the epistles so it's a valid implication of the text that I'm to be a part of that Commission that's the idea here pattern of meaning what Christ meant valid implications invalid implications we can draw all of those out now once we have the pattern of meaning established we have drawn out the valid and the invalid implications of the text The final step is to determine the significance of the author's meaning and consistent implications to you and to I today. Now, the context of the Great Commission is for us to go into the world and evangelize it, right? Win people to Christ and disciple them. We're all going to be in a different place on this though, aren't we? Some people are evangelists. Their call is to win people to Christ. Some people are called to then take those who are one to Christ and to teach them. Some people are called to go across the world and do it. Some people are called to do it in their little neighborhood. Right? So, as we think about this, in the church, Sally, the, the valid, sig- the personal significance to the Great Commission to her is that the Holy Spirit lays it upon her heart to evangelize her neighbors. So she begins to invite her neighbors over and to give them the gospel, to pass out tracts, to invite them to church. Uh, She she uses the Christian holidays in order to, to evangelize, right? Now John, he feels a deep compulsion to reach those that are in jail. And so he, in fulfilling the Great Commission, goes to the jail and preaches the gospel to those that are in jail. And then Bob here says, he hears the Great Commission and immediately Ethiopia comes to mind and he can't get it off his heart and he feels the great need to reach the Ethiopian people with the gospel through the Great Commission. All three of these people heard the same Great Commission, knew the same meaning, understood the same implications, but the personal significance to them was different and that's okay. That is where things diverge. The Great Commission is the, is the same The implications are the same. Jesus defined those. The text defines those. Personal significance that's different for you and it's different for me. I've responded to the Great Commission by accepting the call to become a pastor. You've responded to the Great Commission in a different way. But we're all responsible to respond to the Great Commission. What's the personal significance to us that's going to be different? This is the only level of interpretation that is truly subjective. So we've covered a pretty large amount of information today. And in good time too, by the way. First, we talked about the rules of interpretation. Literal, grammatical, contextual, historical, prayerful. Then the philosophy of interpretation. What part does the text play? What part does the reader play? What part does the author play? Then methods for interpretation. Drawing out the pattern of meaning. Then the valid implications of that meaning. And then the personal significance to you. But look, if, if, if you've never known this stuff, then you go to a Bible study, right, with all of your friends in the neighborhood, and you sit down, and, and we read a passage of Scripture. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. What does that mean to you is what you're going to hear, right? And, someone, and and you see it on the football eye patches. And you see it on Steph Curry's shoes. What are they saying? I can score a lot of points through Christ which strengtheneth me. Not a valid implication of the text. Let's find the pattern of meaning, the valid implications. Paul is actually speaking of suffering there. Paul is actually speaking of persecution there. And that he can live, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. I know how to be a base and how to abound everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to uh, um, suffer need, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Right? Context. What's he saying there? Even on the hard days, Christ can help me through it. On the, uh, on the days where I'm full, it's easy. On the days where I'm suffering need, it's hard. But either way, I can do all things through Christ. It doesn't mean I can score a lot of points in a football game. Right? Invalid implication of the text. But if we just sit down and say, text defines meaning. Reader defines meaning, what does it mean to me? Then we're not going to get anywhere in our Bible studies. We're not going to get anywhere in our theology. What does the Bible mean is what God wants it to mean. What does it mean to me is sig- only significance. What, 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 what is the significance of I can do all things through Christ with strength? If you want to make that significance, I can score a bunch of points, okay. But don't say that's what the Bible's saying. Right? That's the idea here. And so this really does touch the nitty-gritty of of who we are as christians today it touches the nitty-gritty of what we do and, and and how we study the bible and how we talk with our friends about the bible and why it is when we talk with someone and we go do they really believe that why how could they possibly believe that now you know how because we've got a a, a society out there that's saying text defines meaning reader defines meaning and if and if they've they've if they've swallowed that hook line and sinker they're not going to come to the same conclusions you are. We've got a world out there where words don't even mean the same thing anymore. And so when you talk to someone in a different, even denomination now, much less a different religious system, and they say, Jesus is God, what do you mean by that? You have to ask that because we have to understand meaning because we don't mean the same thing anymore. And that's, that's what this is intended to do. Now, next week, we're going to continue building upon these layers. We're going to, to, to continue to build foundationally, next step, next step, next step, until we understand what, where we are and how we got there in our methods of interpretation. Then we'll actually dig into a revelation. I hope it's been profitable for you. I know that you probably have a lot of questions. It's not, this is not the forum for that. But by all means, if you have questions, come see me.